Welcome to the More Than Birds podcast, where we talk about more than birds. So today we're here with Rick Wright. How are you doing today, Rick? Just fine, Rad. Good to talk to you. Yeah, nice to talk to you. So, Rick, I know you know you do uh, your own birding blog, the Birding New Jersey. Is that correct? That is right, Birding New Jersey. And then you also work with Wings. Mm-hmm. Yep, I'm a senior leader with Wings. And uh, so, but you've also done kind of a series of these uh, birding history articles that I want to talk about later. But kind of the first thing is, you know, how, how did you get into birding, and how did it get started with you? Well, I um, started birding at, at what has long been sort of the classic, the traditional age for, for boys. I was 12. Um, my father was a, a junior high science teacher when I was a kid. And so there was always this interest in, in things scientific. But what happened when I was 12 was a couple of things came together. Um, first off, my, my new best friend um, and my lab partner in, in science class in school was just getting started birding. His mother had been birding for a little while and was bringing him along into the fold. And I, I started to tag along. At just about the same time that that happened, my family moved across town. Now, this was in southeast Nebraska. And the move across town took us from an area that had been historically Tallgrass Prairie, just a few miles east into an area that had historically been deciduous forest. And I noticed that the birds were different from the old house to the new house. And that really caught my interest. So I'd say that it was it was basically those three things, the sort of predisposition um, through my father's interests and, and work at the time, um, getting together with, with a new friend and his mother who were getting started in birding, and noticing that a very small geographic shift changed the bird life around me. Those were the those were the factors. And so you said this was in Nebraska. You grew up in, in Nebraska. Yeah, this was in Nebraska. I was born in Nebraska City, which is um, just across the river from, from Iowa. Mm-hmm. But I, I grew up and lived in Bellevue, Nebraska, which back then was about 10 miles south of Omaha. Now you can't tell the difference between Bellevue and Omaha, of course. But that's, um, that's the part of the world where I spent the first 18 years of my life. And so, you know, at a time when you were birding, did you, you know, when you got to college age, were you kind of thinking this was going to be your career? No, you know, I really wasn't. Um, By the time I got to college, I was an undergraduate at the University of Nebraska. By the time I I was an undergraduate, I had figured out that science and birding were for the most part, two very different things. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really interested in or good at the sorts of things that that scientists needed to be interested in to be good at. Um, I've never had a genetics course. I'm not very good at math. Um, Chemistry, which I really liked in high school, was was really hard for me. And so I realized pretty quickly that that a, a scientific career was not going to be as much fun as some other career that would allow me to um, to bird. So in that sense, I was I was lucky. In another sense, I was even luckier, though, um, in that my interest in, in birds and birding led me to a couple of really cool jobs while I was in college. I, um, I was a, a student assistant in the bird collections of the Nebraska State Museum for three years, and I was the teaching assistant to Paul Johnsgaard for his um, graduate-level ornithology class when I was a junior in college, I think it was. 
So at the same time as I knew that that science was not my world, I was still able to sort of work around around the edges of it while I did other things. So th- that's funny. I didn't know that you were John Gard, John's guard's um, <clears throat> assistant. That's mm-hmm. funny. Yeah. And you know, so you're you go you go through college, and then did you kind of go in the normal workforce or? Well, nothing really has been all that normal <laughs> in the progression of <laughs> of my life over these decades. Um, I went from, from the University of Nebraska into law school. I thought that law school might be a, a sort of clever way to, um, to fuse a bunch of interests that I had. Hated it terrifically. Um, came home the first day, determined to drop out. I stayed the first year. Um, and and then dropped out. But during that um, during that first year, I I had a really bad time in school and a really great time outside. I was living um, in the Boston area and met some some birders who are still very close friends of mine today. So in a way, what seemed like a detour and at the time a really unpleasant detour led me into into things and relationships that I that I cherish very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, then, I decided that, you know, I, I really wanted to do the sorts of things that I, I had enjoyed doing as an undergraduate, and I applied to graduate schools. I wasn't entirely sure whether I should go to, um, go to graduate school in philosophy or in French or in German literature, and um, ended up going to graduate school and eventually taking a Ph.D. in German literary history. And um, after that, then I finally got a job, and I was an academic for the next oh, 13, 14 years after that. So I should call you doctor. No, don't because <laughs> then somebody will come in wanting first aid. I, I used to fly uh, using my, my title a lot, especially when I would be going back and forth to Europe for various things. Yeah. Um, because in that part of the world, the, the, the doctor title matters quite a bit. But, um, you know, I, I really don't want to get in a position of forcing people to ask, are you a real doctor? Yeah, that's always a question. Putting re- myself in the, in the position of having to say, of course I'm a real doctor. I just don't have a nurse. Right. <laughs> and this guy's not speaking German, so... <laughs> so you, 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 get, you, you go in the academic world, and so you're just birding... Uh, recreationally during this time? Rick, are you there? Uh-oh. You're, you're disappearing for long oh. seconds. Okay, you're back. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm here, um, but you, you've disappeared a couple of times now for several seconds. Okay, yeah, I'd... I, I noticed it glitched out there. So, anyways, to get back to it is so you're in academia, and do you continue like the bird recreationally then? Oh yeah, um, the the years as an assistant professor were were a little bit slow um, for birding because I was you know doing the things that assistant professors have to do, which is work yourself into an early grave. But all the same, I was I was still birding, um, and I was fortunate. I was at the University of Illinois for um, nine of those years. And I had a couple of colleagues there on the faculty who were also birders. Um, and so we, we were a congenial bunch um, out and about birding. And um, yeah, I, I kept up my interest through, through everything else. Yeah. And 
So you you were you're still birding, and and you, so what what prompted you to leave academia then? <laughs> well, I I made a mistake is what what prompted me to leave the academy. Um, I was working at the Index of Christian Art, which is a division of um, art and archaeology at Princeton University on medieval Italian sculpture, and really had a great time doing that. But then I got an offer from a um, small Jesuit university in New York City, and I, I allowed myself to be seduced by the promise of, of advanced rank and better money and um, all that sort of thing and ended up in a place that I didn't really like very much. Mm -hmm. And I stuck it out there for, I don't know, three or four years or something. And at that point, I actually was spending more time birding um, and, and more happy time birding than I was at my job. And fortunately, um, my decision to, to leave the academy coincided with, with my wife's being able to step in and, um, and, and support us for a while. And so I kind of pulled up stakes and we moved to Arizona and I set up a, a little business as a, as a birding guide. We'd already bought a place in Tucson as a summer house. Um, you know, birders um, buy summer houses in the desert. Right. Somebody else. <laughs> and so that was, that was already set up and, and waiting for us. We, we simply moved from, from, we were living in New Jersey then, we simply moved to, to Arizona and I set up. Um, that was 2003. That was 10 years ago now. And as I look back, it was a pretty goofy thing to do. Um, you know, a lot of risks involved in, in giving up stable incomes and, and all of that. But I, I'm really glad that I did it. I, um, I, I managed to make a, a go of it pretty much from the start. Um, you know, Southeast Arizona, everybody wants to bird Southeast Arizona. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a cultural tradition in North American birding that you bird Southeast Arizona with a guide. And I, I certainly took advantage of that, of that cultural tradition, of that expectation. And I've had some great clients over the years and some, some really wonderful friendships developed out of that. And and so, how did the relationship with wings evolve? You know, it must have been oh, 2007, 2006 maybe. Um, Will Russell was looking for a new managing director, and he gave me a call when we started talking about it. And though office work isn't my strong suit, um, I at that point was was interested in looking for something that was a little bit more more stable from day to day. And so I agreed to um, to come into the office and serve as managing director. I lasted a bit more than two years over that. And um, at that point, my wife, Allison, um, had finished her graduate work. And she was looking for academic jobs. And when she got a job here in New Jersey, um, we pulled up and sold up and um, moved out back to New Jersey. I really miss Tucson. Um, it's probably my favorite place in the world. The only place that we have ever lived by choice. You know, when, when you're in the academic world, you don't often get a chance to choose where you, where you live and work, but, um, Tucson was, was our choice. And so it's, it's hard not to be there, but it's funny when Allison was applying for jobs, I told her, I said, I, I'm obviously willing to, to leave Arizona with you if you get a job someplace else. But if only it could be in New Jersey, that'd be great. <laughs> it worked out. Here we are back in New Jersey. So, 
that's kind of how we've how we've ended up where we are. I would never have been able to predict it. And um, writing a piece of fiction about about the the geographic vagaries of my career would um, result in something that no one would buy or believe. But that's how it happened. All right, and and so you know you're in New Jersey now, and so I noticed you changed your blog. You know, it was this Arizona birding blog, and then it became this New Jersey birding uh-huh. blog. Yeah, you know what what are what what are the differences in culture? You know, cause I always I always find it funny. I always think that each place has its own kind of birding culture. That's absolutely right. And, um, New Jersey is a, a really interesting aquarium for birding culture. We had always, before we moved um, here to Bloomfield, which is in extreme northern New Jersey, I'm, I'm looking out the window at the skyline of Manhattan as we speak. Um, when we moved to northern New Jersey, I really thought that it was going to be like the rest of the state. It's not at all. Um, when we lived in Princeton, we felt ourselves oriented to the the birding culture and the, the birding society of South Jersey, which means Cape May. Mm-hmm. We're now a bit more than three hours from Cape May, and Cape May is a different world. Um, North Jersey, the birding culture here is is old and established, but I would say it's not as active. Um, here, it's not as active here in North Jersey as it is in South Jersey. It's certainly not as active here as it as it was in Arizona, and it strikes me as as a fairly conservative birding culture in North Jersey, in that in that the number of birders who are really interested in in new developments in in birding. Is, is smaller than it is in, in other places. It's a, a really very, very fascinating thing. Um, North Jersey reminds me very much of, the, of the, the birding culture and the birding traditions that I grew up with in the 1970s in the Midwest. Um, the, the group is much bigger, of course, but it's also just a bit more, a bit more casual, a bit less intense, um, certainly enjoyable, and there's certainly a lot of, of fun being had by birders when they go outside. But it's not really as 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 zealous, not really as studious, not really interested in the cutting edge the way that other places are. And while I I find that sort of relaxing birding really a lot of fun, I also have to say that sometimes I miss the challenge of of southeast Arizona, mm-hmm. where you could always count on running some to, into somebody in the field who was a lot better than you are and from whom you could learn a lot. Now I learn a lot here in North Jersey too, but in general I have to I have to actually make a a, a point of of seeking out <clears throat> if I want to learn in the field. While back in Southeast Arizona, you could just go outside mm-hmm. and and count on running into people who had a lot to teach you, and I I really enjoyed that. And so, what's your local patch? Is that kind of the Meadowlands area? Would you consider your local patch? Or? Yeah, we spend a lot of time in the Meadowlands, um, which has really been a, a revelation to me. Back in the eighties, when I lived in New, in um, in New Jersey the first time, we would come to the Meadowlands once a winter 
to um, to drive around the garbage dumps, which were still active, to get our lesser blackback gull. Now, as a birder, you know that there's a lot of, of really interesting historical detail in what I just said. First yeah. off, nobody looks for lesser blackback gull anymore. Um, basically, anywhere in the in the east or the Midwest, you just don't have to. But the other thing, and this is what has impressed me and, and really made me so happy, the Meadowlands is no longer a place where they dump the bodies. Um, the Meadowlands is just beautiful nowadays. They've done a lot of restoration and mitigation. Um, even where there are still active landfills, they are being done with, with great environmental sensitivity. And every time I go to the Meadowlands, I get the feeling that this is an ecosystem in recovery. Um, it's really just wonderful to go out there and see Forster's terns and black skimmers and big flocks of shorebirds and, and tree swallows everywhere. It'll never look again like it did before the, the turnpike and, and New Jersey transit mm -hmm. um, cut across the Meadowlands. But it is night and day, the difference between the Meadowlands of today and the Meadowlands of 35 years ago. And so are they protecting a lot of that now, like moving it out of this industrial um, fair, fair portions of it are now being administered for, for wildlife and habitat. Yes. Oh, great. That's great. And so, you know, so like I was saying before, is you move to New Jersey and you kind of transform your blog into the birding New Jersey blog. Mm -hmm. And some of the really interesting posts that I found interesting that you've been doing lately is a lot of this birding history and kind of. Oh, yeah. yeah. Un untold stories. You know, we, we kind of know that, you know, a lot of birders, at least, we know the general bio of John James Audubon. You know, we, you know, Bertram, we might know a little bit. And, and some of, you know, some of the other early ornithologists, we might know a little bit. But what kind of prompted you to kind of delve into the history the way you have? Well, you know, part of it is just idle curiosity. Um, I'm I'm always sort of interested in in learning things. I, I tend to think that knowing something is better than not knowing something, and it's possible to know a lot of stuff about the um, the early history of ornithology and birding nowadays that wasn't possible before. The internet is just so spectacular, um, and. The other part of it is this feeling that as spectacular as the Internet is, the Internet is also leading North American birding into a very strongly fact-based cultural approach. Um, you know, I can look up anything. I can look up a date. I can look up a fact. I can tell you what color the inside of the lower mandible of any given species is mm -hmm. at, at any given age. But that ready access to that kind of factual information, I think, has also moved us away from an interest in, in context. And if I have a mission in thinking and writing about the history of ornithology and birding, it's to remind us that that context is really something that we should not lose. And so I've... I've become kind of interested in the way that that birders think about birding and the way that birders think about their own development as birders and the development of birding as a as a pastime. And it seems to me that the most useful approach to that sort of of issue to that sort of question is a historical one. 
and I don't really have any plans at the moment to write a, a, a great overarching universal history of birding and ornithology. But what I have been doing for, for I don't know, a couple of years now, I guess, is just trying hard to notice things, to notice, to notice the sorts of things that birders repeat and report without really thinking about where they come from or what they mean. And that, I think, has been a really interesting exercise for me, and I hope that other people have found it useful, too, to sort of step back from some of the things that we say as birders and ask, what do we mean by that? Where did we get that? Is that true? Um, why, why do we care about that? Mm-hmm. And, and so when you're, you're putting this idea of the, the historical context of birding, you know, what, what was, you know, when you first started, not where I'm trying to go with this, but when you first started doing this, you know, what was, which of the ornithologists really jumped at you that you thought, oh, that would, that was the interesting story. Oh, wow. Well, you know, they, they all have, have pretty interesting stories. Um, today's Audubon's birthday, if I remember right. And, um, you know, there's, there's just this endless store of, of Audubon legend and lore out there. I don't know if people still still learn about it in school, but I remember in fourth grade we had um, a, a unit, I guess they'd call it, on Nebraska history that was required of all fourth graders in the state. And Audubon, of course, came up the Missouri River in, uh, now I'm in bad shape, um, I think 1843 was his, um, his big Missouri River expedition. And we spent just you know, hours and hours in class with our science and social studies teachers telling us about John James Audubon, you know, just a couple of miles from where our school stood. And so he's always been a pretty fascinating figure to me. Um, What fascinates me most about him nowadays, though, is not Audubon so much as our notions of Audubon. And um, just today with um, with the, the Audubon birthday being celebrated, I ran across on the internet, as I always do, um, these these made-up quotations that are attributed to Audubon because it sounds good to to put them above his name. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a really terrifically interesting phenomenon. Um, why do we need to take a historical figure who was most decidedly flesh and blood, um, flesh, blood, and feet of clay is how I often think of Audubon. Um, why do we feel the need to take him and remold him into, say, a proto-conservationist, um, which a lot of people do, or into a, a closeted um, avian physiologist, which people do, um, not recognizing that most of the dissections and the descriptions of the dissections in the ornithological biography were actually done and written by McGillivray rather than, than by Audubon himself. What do we do with these figures who are actually historical figures but somehow fall short of what we want them to be? We want Audubon to be a scientist. We want Audubon to be a conservationist. And what Audubon was was a a hunter and a painter. Mm-hmm. And by the way, a very good painter. Um, I was in New York last week, beginning of this week, um, to see the um, the exhibit hanging at the New York Historical Society, Audubon's Aviary, where they are putting up all of the 435 watercolors that he produced for the birds of, of America over the next three years. I had never seen a painting from Audubon's hand before Monday of this week. 
I had always, of course, just seen the plates, um, the engravings. And I have had over the last few days to completely rethink my opinions of, of Audubon as artist. Um, he was he was good. He was good. It, you mean in terms that the plates just don't translate the watercolor very well? Well, you know, when we think about the Birds of America, we think about those 435 plates that were published in the 1830s at mm-hmm. the cost of $1,000 for the whole set. And we think of them as a, a triumph of technology. Um, the, the engraving process um, for the double elephant was was really a, an advanced technological progress process. And we think of it, too, as an entrepreneurial triumph. Audubon... You know, coming from the frontier of America, had to sell things that cost a thousand dollars. I don't know about you, but I can't spend a thousand dollars at the drop of a hat in the year 2013. Right. From 175 years ago, that was a large amount of money. And, and wasn't it also that when you when you paid the money, that they weren't all completed yet? Yeah, they were um, kind of rolling over, like you know, they're they, selling futures almost. Big publishing projects were were published by subscription, which meant that you paid for a delivery as it came in. And Birds of America came in in sets of five prints. I don't remember what they cost, but um, the whole thing was, was pretty expensive by the time you were done. And lots of subscribers, of course, lost interest in the course of the project and, and stopped paying. Lots of subscribers died in the course of the project, and, and their heirs stopped paying. So it was a, a risky way to publish something, but it was the only way to publish something that was that big, that expensive, and was going to take that that many years. And, and so on these copper plates, you're talking about the double elephant. Mm-hmm. So was, is it literally like a multicolor process with different plates for each no, color? No, um, it was not color printing. Um, the the engravings were were pulled, mm-hmm. and then they were hand colored. Okay. Yeah. So there. So, is, and that's might be why the watercolors come through. Because sometimes when I look at, you know, I like I'm I've always seen reproductions, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the colors seem very opaque. You know, well, a block but- of red is a block of red. There's no nuance to it. Um, certainly, the colorists who were employed by by Audubon's publishers were not as skilled as as Audubon was, um, and that I think colors, so to speak, um, our ideas, at least my ideas, of the artistic quality of of Birds of America. Um, I I don't find hand colored engravings all that appealing. Mm-hmm. For the most part, but we can't really judge the accomplishment. Um, this is what I've learned this week. We can't really judge Audubon's accomplishment on the basis of of the engraved plates. If we go back to the watercolors, we find that he was a master of the medium. Um, I still think that he he exhibited some pretty poor taste in 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 composition sometimes, but. Um, I mean, it's it's quite amazing to to look at the watercolors from Audubon's own hand. You see on the um, on the famous felt hat that Carolina wrens are nesting in. You see the edges of that felt hat fraying um, into into the background, just like an old felt hat does. And that doesn't come through in the in the engraved colored pl- plates at all. So I've I've had to revise my opinion of the old man. 
and 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 so you know you see the so they're doing how many of you're saying they're doing the entire 435 but how yeah. many at a time the New York Historical Society bought the paintings from Lucy Audubon in 1863, 150 years ago this year, um, in I think it was July of, of 1863, that um, that they bought them, and they're they're dividing them into into three hangings, um, one hanging this year, one hanging next year, and okay. one hanging the year after that, and if we divide 435 by three, um, we get what 140 some 145. Paintings a year, so it's it's a lot to look at, but it's certainly worth it. And and so, how do you feel, you know you were saying about some of his composition? You know, how do you feel about you know the way he portrayed actual behavior or natural history? And it it, se it seems sometimes to me it's very accurate, and other times it's off. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, there are the famous contemporary debates um, during Audubon's lifetime. Do rattlesnakes climb trees? Um, they they probably don't, but there's a lot of, of artistic vim mm -hmm. in the depiction of the, the rattlesnake being attacked by, I think it's mockingbirds. It's it's one yeah. of the, it's, I think it's northern mockingbirds. And then, of course, I mean, one of my favorites is, is Yellow-Breasted Chat, where Audubon takes a conventional style of representation of birds in ornithological works, wings spread, legs splayed, heads drawn back, looking kind of dead. And what he does is show the chats in that pose being alive, and he transforms that pose into the, um, the, the, the sky dance, the, the flight song, of the yellow-breasted chat, which I think is just terrifically brilliant. If you look at the yellow-breasted chat in Catesby, um, Catesby has a chat that is dead with its wings spread, its legs dangling, and its head thrown back, and it's obviously dead. Audubon takes the same pose and makes it into a male yellow-breasted chat who is so filled with the spirit that he's flying over the thicket singing. It's it's really quite terrific, quite terrific. Now, there's a lot of drama in, in a lot of the plates, but I think that that drama is, is not unrealistic a lot of the time. Um, I mean, think of the, the great blackback gull, which Audubon depicts as having been shot. It's bleeding, it's dying on the page. And I don't think that painting is is very tasteful or very beautiful, but I think it's it's realistic and dramatic, and um, and that sort of thing really adds to the uniqueness of of the birds of America. It's it's not pretty. I don't know too many birders who have that plate or a reproduction of that plate hanging above their dining room table, but it's 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 certainly attention grabbing. And, and you were saying, you know, earlier you were getting an idea of this uh, kind of revisionist history where we're trying to pigeonhole Audubon into some contemporary meme, you know, the great conservationist. Or, and, you know, from what I read about Audubon, it, it seemed like someone who had a, had a definite passion for nature, but a lot of times he was, I think he was just trying to keep food in his mouth <laughs> by producing these works, you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Audubon could have had a fairly comfortable life as a, um, 
as a, a farmer and a, a small merchant, but he just wasn't really cut out for it. And the food in the mouths of the children was provided for the most part over many years by his wife, who um, who did a lot of tutoring and teaching while he was out shooting and, and painting birds. But we need to understand Audubon. You make a very good point there, Rad. We need to understand Audubon as a representative of a new model of publishing in the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, we we find professional authors for the first time in, in the history of, of the West. And he was a professional author, making his living by painting and, and writing. And we, we need not to forget that that was a, a new sort of enterprise, even more fraught than, um, than life is for those of us who try to, to cobble together a living nowadays. Right. And, and so do you think, you know, the, the, the one meme that keeps coming up with Audubon is this idea of the conservation meme. Uh-huh. Do you do you feel that I personally don't feel that he had a conservation bent as much as he had almost like a documentarian? You know, he was chronicling the natural history without really a notion of saving it from anything. I think that's a, a good way to think about it. He certainly saw in himself the recorder of the American frontier. And that that recording function really guides a lot of what he what he has to say and a lot of the, the travels that he made in his lifetime. Now, a lot of a lot of this notion that Audubon was a great conservationist comes from a few passages in the ornithological biography where he laments the, the pushing back of the frontier. But that's not a conservation ethos so much as it is a, a topos of nostalgia. Um, Audubon missed the America that he grew up in. He missed what was still very much access to wilderness when he was a young man. And as he gets older, he sees the world changing around him and he, he doesn't like it. Um, that's, that's understandable. It's the way everybody feels about it. But it certainly did not it did not move him to become a conservationist in the way that those of us who are not afraid of anachronism want to see him nowadays. If you think about um, the, the passenger pigeon essays in, in the ornithological biography, he talks over and over and over about how many thousands and thousands and thousands of birds are shot, about how many thousands and thousands and thousands of birds he shoots. And at the end of it, the only conclusion that he draws is not that we're going to shoot this bird out of existence. It is that, hmm, this bird is part of the American frontier, and when the American frontier is gone, the passenger pigeon may be too. That's a simple observation, and it's an observation founded in this this rosy look back at his young manhood. It is not a look forward at the real future of any sort of, at, at any endangered species. Um, there's just no, there was no intellectual framework for anyone to be a conservationist in the 1830s and 1840s uh, in, in this country or anywhere else. And, and so, you know, out of these early, you know, ornithologists and naturalists, you know, when do you kind of see that, that conservation not in name, but maybe in, in notion, starts to come about. I mean, 
Oh, we're certainly looking at the 1880s when, yeah. when that happens. And remember that this is about the same time that we start talking also about the um, the end of the American frontier. Um, the the early conservation movement had as much to do with with this this rosy look backward at an American past, a very romantic American past, as it did with the loss of, of the plants and animals that, that the early conservationists focused on. But, I mean, here we are in the 1880s, right, with the foundation of the first abortive Audubon Society, um, then in the 1890s and, um, and early part of the 20th century. That movement is picked up again, also again, under the name Audubon. And and that, I think, is, is where it starts. Now, it was very much conservation on the level of the organism rather than conservation on the level of the environment back then. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, if you started a movement to save a single species of bird or a single group of birds, the, the herons, the terns, the, the plovers, um, at, the, at the turn of the 20th century, I think you would really be making a strategic mistake. Now what we want to save is the boreal forest. We want to save the tall grass prairie. We want to save the old growth forests of the Northwest. And we can pull out an individual bird from each of those regions to serve as, as poster child for the cause. But our focus is much broader, much more sensible, and I think much more much more effective nowadays than it was back then. And you probably know that the name Audubon was attached to these early conservation movements just as a matter of, of, of biographical happenstance. Um, George Bird Grinnell happens to have been one of Lucy Audubon's little pupils when he was a child, and he really really worshipped the old woman. He called her grandma. And so, of course, when it came time for Grinnell and and the other sportsmen in his circle, the other hunters in his circle, to come together to form a, a conservation group, they immediately thought of, of Audubon because Grinnell had such, such fond memories of all the stuffed birds in the Audubon's house in Manhattan. Oh, I, I've never heard that backstory. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, Grinnell tells tells the story in a couple of different places, and it's just really, really very charming. Um, he he grew up with the Audubon, yeah, it would have been the Audubon grandchildren. Um, went to school literally at at Lucy Audubon's feet, and she left him in her will um, his favorite painting from from Minnie's Land, from from the house that um, that she lived in. And and. <laughs> I have an audience here. <laughs> so it now she survived much longer than John James, Lucy did, correct? You know, I don't know her years exactly, but certainly it was a quarter century. Certainly it was in the seventies, yeah. And he died in fifty one, if I remember right. So in in those early you know, those early days, you know, the mid eighteen hundreds, who was kind of the, the successor, do you think, to Audubon that especially in terms of, of ornithological art? Oh, wow. Um, There was no successor, um, and there was, I would assert, no real ornithological art in in North America uh, after Audubon until, well, you know, we we all want to say until Fuertes. Mm -hmm. There was a good tradition of ornithological illustration 
um, in the um, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. John Casson is one of the, the names that springs to mind. But ornithological art was was decorative after Audubon, and really not until Fuertes came along did we get another another ornithologist in 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 the old-fashioned mode um, come along who who could also paint. And and so when he was when was he running around? What was kind of his era of activity? Um, Fuertes. Yeah. Um, yeah. He was painting in the in the nineties until he died in um, twenty twenty six or something like that. And then you can kind of say from Fuertes to Peterson, the Sibley, oh. that kind of idea. Or? No, no, no. Um, I I would not. I would not put Peterson or or. Sibley in into that line of descent at all, right? You um, think they're more in the illustri- the illustration line then? Um, David Sibley is a terrifically gifted illustrator. Um, his 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 bird paintings are among the most instructive that have ever been produced. Um, I don't really see that any of of his paintings problematize the the cultural and aesthetic circumstances of their creation. In that sense, I. Mm-hmm. I I would not consider them art at all. And Roger Torrey Peterson certainly had had great pretensions to um, to being an artist. And no, I mean he was he was a serviceable illustrator. And some of his early paintings are are interesting in that they play around with with the the modernist aesthetic of the of the early twentieth century. But um, he. No, 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 no great shakes. I have a Peterson original hanging on the on the wall above me right now, and I'm I'm very very proud to own it. But I wouldn't call it art um, by by any means. It's a, a plate produced for the, I think for the the most recent edition of the Western Guide of of Immature Gulls, and it's it's very interesting. It's a fascinating document of a fascinating man and a fascinating time in the history of, of North American birding, but its artistic value is zero. Mm-hmm. And do you? Who do you think? In terms, of, is there anyone that kind of took that up as bird art sense? Are there good bird artists nowadays? Um, yeah. I mean, that there's time. I mean, like you know, now I see a proliferation of bird artists, but I mean. Was there kind of like did did people learn from Huertas and go forward or, mm. or is there really a lineage or does this kind of start and stops? Yeah, I think that all art kind of starts and stops. I I don't think that what you do is is take the great qualities of your forebears and continue them. You take the great qualities of your forebears, you appreciate them. And you react to them um, often negatively. Um, nowadays, I mean, Lars Janssen is, to my eye, not just a, a great ornithological illustrator, but a great painter. Um, mm-hmm. I think Lars Janssen is a fine artist, and he could paint anything he wanted, and and I would I would admire it. Um, among Americans, I think Barry Van Dusen is is fantastic. Um, he's he's witty. He's technically very very skilled, and he is not bound by the notion that the bird has to be shown in in profile. And he's not a, a feather painter, as as Roger Torrey Peterson used to call them. Mm-hmm. A feather painter. 
and, and so, you know, we kind of went, you know, through a little bit of the history of Verdi, and it seems very appropriate given today is Audubon's birthday. Um, the other thing that I find really... I saw on the internet that today is Audubon's birthday. I haven't actually checked to make sure... I did was. I did check during this conversation. Okay. Okay. Yeah, April 26th. Okay, good. So, well, at least that's what they say. You know, back in those days, I think... Birth birth records are a little fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially if you're the illegitimate child of your father's cook, I think that um, you know it, it might be a little bit difficult to pin it down to the day. Yeah, there might be that conversation. It was a Tuesday. I remember this. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? But you know, the other thing that you do, and this kind of goes underneath my whole umbrella, the idea behind More and Birds, is you know some of the tours that you've been doing. Uh, with wings uh-huh. in, in Europe have an interesting bent because I think they they introduce more of a cultural or an experiential experience to the normal birding trip. Yeah, that's right. And uh, most of my European tours, France, Italy, um, I advertised one for Germany a couple of years ago that I don't think ran. Um, most of those tours actually go under the under the title, the formal title, Birds and Art. Um, in part because those are the sorts of things that I'm interested in, and I've always birded that way when, mm-hmm. when I'm in Europe. You know, the, the morning in the field looking at birds, and the afternoon looking at churches and, and architecture and museums. And there's also a, a commercial, uh, a marketing um, tendency behind that. I think that it's kind of unfair if you, um, if you ask a birder to leave his or her non-birding partner or spouse or friend or traveling companion at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that, well, I'm, I'm lucky I'm married to a birder, but if I weren't married to a birder, I'd still want to go on vacation with her once in a while. And it just seems a shame to me to go to places like Provence, to go to places like Tuscany, to go to places like, um, like Eastern Germany and not bring people along just because they're not interested in, in birds to the same fanatic extent that, that some of us are. And so what happens with these tours, and I've been very, very happy that this is what happens, you get people who are birders and want to come and see the birds, but you also get their, their friends and their, their partners who are perhaps a bit less obsessed with birds but want to see the art and the history and the archaeology and the landscape and and the culture and often enough the food and the wine of the country. And that's my idea of a good birding trip where you see a lot of birds, but you see them not just against a landscape, but in a landscape, a landscape that's both natural and cultural, a landscape that is artistic and historic. Um, it seems to me there's really no other no other way to travel. Um, many years ago, I remember taking someone in um, in north central Germany to see a stork's nest on a church, and the church is is justly famous for a, a very beautiful series of 14th century wall paintings inside. And after we'd seen the stork, I said, "All right, let's go inside and, and look at the paintings." And they didn't want to. And I thought that was just such a such a waste of a day to to only do half the stuff that you could have done there. And I resolved at, at that point that I was never going to do that and I was never going to bird with people who did that. So Well it seems to, it seems to uh, uh, play into the idea of the obsessive birder, you know, birding to the exclusion of all other notions or activities. 
Well, I'm obsessive too. Um, one of the optics companies, I can't remember which one, years ago used to have an ad that ran on the back cover of all the magazines saying, for those of you who are never not a birder, and right. that's that's me. I mean, I'm I'm never not a birder. I'm doing something very pleasant right now, having yeah. a conversation with a friend, yeah. and I'm watching um, blue-headed vireos in in the backyard at the same time. I'm never not a birder, but I'm also never not someone who is. I've got myself lost in all the negatives. Um, I am always someone who is also interested in in all the other things. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I'm if I'm looking at bee eaters nesting in an Etruscan tomb, I want to know a little bit about that Etruscan tomb too. If I'm looking at at black red starts perching on the roof of a, a Romanesque statue on the west front of a 12th century church, I want to know a little bit about that church too. Right, and then also know okay, what architectural period was it? Okay, this is what's going on, and it seems like then you almost develop a story, a narrative. Yeah, that's right. You you do. And I think that the best tours, the best the best bird trips have a, a narrative structure to them. They have a beginning, they have an end, and most of all they have a an outside context. And and so do you do you see kind of an expansion of this, you know, I hate to call it birding plus, but you know, birding, you know, plus, you know, like birding and art or birding and yeah, wine. You know, do, do you see that kind of growing in the in the birding tourism yeah, industry? It's, it's inevitable and and unavoidable and and entirely salutary. Mm-hmm. Um, Wings has long had a um, birds and music series, thanks to Brian Bland, mm-hmm. who is a, a, a great genius in in both um, field guides has done something that I think is just wonderful. They've got a series of um, birds and pubs tours that that go to Ireland. And, I mean, I, I wish that I'd had that idea when I was in the wings. Yeah, that's a Terry McEnany. Somebody to do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just a, a great idea. Yeah. And it, it not only increases the, the value and the enjoyment of the experience for the birders, but it also keeps the non-birders, the less obsessive mm-hmm. birders on the tour, from, from being left out, from being marginalized. Um, if, you, if you do a tour that is just tick and run like they were in the, in the 1970s, that was the model that, that birding tourism was developed on. If you do that and you're not somebody who is interested in filling in, filling in the checklist at the end of the day, you're going to have no fun at all. Right, but if you know that you know we're going to be birding in a bunch of Roman ruins today, and if you don't really care all that much about seeing yet another blue rock thrush, well, you can look at the buildings, you can talk to people about what was going on in these mm-hmm. in these places twenty two hundred years ago, and it seems to me that that's just a a sensible and an inevitable way to to run bird tours. Well, you know, I, I love that idea of, you know, especially, you know, Terry, you know, my other passion in my life is beer. <laughs> and, you know, with Terry's, you know, this these birding and pubs tours of Ireland, you know, uh-huh. yeah, which it's, is it's fantastic. Pubs in Ireland are another passion of his, you know, uh-huh. so it yeah. makes a lot of sense. You know, he is my na- my neighbor in terms that we live in the same town. <laughs> I didn't know that. I did not know. That. Oh, yeah. He, he lives in Missoula. Okay. So that, I thought it was funny that you brought that up. He even has a pub in his basement as an aside. <laughs> uh, 
You know, and I, I've long had an idea for Southern California of doing the great Southern California breweries in a birding tour. Yeah, I think that's a neat idea. So, like four days, you always say, you know you go to go to a brewery or a, mm-hmm. or a beer themed restaurant, and you have a great lunch, bird a little bit more than a beer themed dinner, and so you're doing you know brewery visits and meals and birding and. You know. Sure, I mean for for the obsessive birder, any activity fits in with birding. Yeah, that's to my mind the mistake that's that lots of people in the birding tourism industry have made over the last couple of decades, they think that the obsessive birder wants to bird to the exclusion of all else. Well, that's not true. It's just that the obsessive birder birds through everything else, but enjoys everything else too. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've never had a birder turn down a good meal in the south of France, I'll tell you. Oh, count me in. Well, it, it's like uh, John Dunn, you know, he, uh, the Civil War tour. Right, exactly. Yep, yep. Um, John's Civil War tours, he's up to two now. He's got um, one that does Georgia and Carolina and one that does Pennsylvania and and Maryland. Um, I think that is just a a wonderful, wonderful idea. The Civil War battlefields have lots of good birding on them. The Civil War battlefields obviously are very important historic sites in in the development of, of this country. And there's no reason that you have to be either someone who's interested in the history of the U.S. or someone who's interested in the birds of the U.S. Go out to Gettysburg and you see birds perched on the cannons. I mean, that that really sums it up for me. Yeah, that's interesting. So, you know, what's kind of coming up for Rick in the, in the near future here? What are you up to? Oh, boy. Well, I'm um, working pretty hard, which means to... Which which means I'm you know sitting at the desk a lot. I'm not sure I'm getting much done. Um, working on the new Peterson Reference Guide to Sparrows, which is due from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt in 2015. I'm going to keep leading for wings. Um, you know I I'm at the stage in the year now. It's April, so I'm looking hard at 2014 and 2015 and and fine tuning the the tour program. Maybe adding a couple, deleting a couple. And otherwise, just continuing to to be a birder and to think about what it means to be a birder. Well, you know, and that's kind of interesting. You know, you can talk about what it means to be a birder. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's always kind of an interesting notion of this idea that you know you're never not birding. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've I I would love to steal that. <laughs> Well, I stole it from from some optics company whose representatives are going to be in touch with me by registered letter soon, probably with right. the assist order. But, uh, but you know, it, it is that you 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 never are not birding. You know, it's always in the you know it's always playing in at least the background. You know, you're noticing what just flew by or what you heard. And you were talking about your blue headed vireos, and I just had a red nape sapsucker drumming out. Oh. You know, so it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> and you note it. It's impossible for a birder to go through the day without seeing without seeing the world. And if you're not a birder or if you don't have some other sort of, of consuming hobby, um, I think that you can you can sort of walk around without without noticing that there's anything around you sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the, the one thing that always sums it up in a quote for me is is the Pablo Neruda quote, you know. Bird by bird by bird, I've come to know the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much, Rick, for your time and 
and talking to me about, uh, especially about Audubon. That kind of, I really enjoyed that. Well, very good to talk to you, Rand, too. Yep. All right. Well, this has been, you know, our More and Birds podcast. And thank you so much, Rick Wright, and hope to talk to you later. All right. We'll talk again soon, Rand. Okay.